0: I'm going to describe to you a watercolor done by an artist named Nellie Toll. It's a country scene. In the middle of the picture is a wagon, and you can see the hindquarters of the horse that is pulling the wagon through a forest. A man with a cap and a mustache is holding the reins, and behind him sit two boys, a man, and a dark-haired girl in a red polka-dot dress. She leans against the man, her head against his chest, suggesting familiarity and comfort. All the people in the wagon are ruddy-cheeked, and the men wear light coats. Perhaps it's springtime and they're out for a joyride. Maybe a crisp breeze is blowing, carrying with it the scent of a pine forest awakening from winter. The painting is called A Trip with Father, a present for good behavior, and Nellie Toll was eight or nine when she painted it in 1943. Her age is remarkable. It's an incredibly sophisticated painting for a child, but Even more remarkable are the conditions under which she made this watercolor. At the time she painted it, Nellie hadn't been outside in probably a year. She was Jewish, and she and her mother were in hiding in Lwów, Poland, in a one-bedroom apartment occupied by the Wojteks, a Christian couple who had agreed to help them. Nellie hadn't seen her father in months, and she never would again. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, except actually from the linen closet in my living room, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists whose work addresses the most pressing issues of their times. This season, we're focusing on art that was created during times of isolation and confinement.
1: Hello, this is Nellie Toll. Who am I speaking to?
0: Hi, this is Mackenzie Fagan. Should I call you Ms. Toll, Mrs. Toll, Nellie? How would you like me to refer to you?
1: You can call me any way you want. It's okay. It's okay.
0: Nellie Toll is now 85 years old, and I reached her last week at her daughter's home in New Jersey, where she's riding out the coronavirus pandemic. She's over it. I'm
1: disgusted with this virus and is being stuck, you know. But I'm sure you know all about it. I don't have to complain to you.
0: <laughs> so what does daily life look like for you right now?
1: Dull, dull. <laughs> Very dull.
0: As people are getting tired of staying home and starting to reemerge, what advice do you have for them? I mean, I feel like you're sort of uniquely situated as somebody who had to stay in an apartment for almost two years <laughs> What would you tell people who are saying, oh, you know, I can't stand? I
1: will tell people, very foolish to go outside. I feel you really endanger your life because you can't get it. I mean, this is a horrible thing, this, this virus. And if you go outside, you not only endanger yourself, and God it, you come back to the house, you infect others. I think it's a very, very foolish thing to do.
0: You'd think that Nellie might be better equipped than most to handle the stay-at-home conditions we find ourselves in. But the last time she was shut up in an apartment like this was almost 80 years ago. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. Good
2: evening. The headlines
0: tonight, Monday the... Hitler has committed a crime not only against Poland but against the whole human race. Back at the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Never before has there been a greater challenge to life, liberty, and civilization.
2: Hitler is demanding the reunification of Germany with East Prussia and regards Poland as the physical barrier to his ambitions. Already,
0: German troops, guns, and planes have crossed the Polish border to kill and to destroy. Everywhere, it seemed, influx and exodus as the doors around Europe begin to shut.
2: Britain is tonight making it clear to Adolf Hitler that if he does send his armies into Poland, Great Britain will go to war.
0: This is the European front, once again being established in fire and blood. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. (laughs) Even before Nelly went into hiding with the Bojotecs, she felt the constriction of confinement. Shortly after the Nazis invaded Poland in 1941, the Jews of Lwów, who at the time made up nearly half of the city, started to feel the walls closing in. A curfew was instituted. Jewish children were no longer allowed to attend school. Nellie's mother came home one day with a black eye, forbidding her children from going outside. In her memoir, Behind the Secret Window, Nellie writes of her mother, she stressed again in a very strict voice that we were never never to go on the street. We younger kids stayed indoors all the time now. No longer did I think of playing outside, feeling the summer's light breath, running in the rain, watching the reflections of shimmering puddles on our street. In Nellie's painting, A Walk with Teacher, five uniformed girls in knee socks and red belts walk beside a pond or large puddle, trailing behind their teacher, pretty and willowy in a blue plaid dress. The girls hold hands, two by two, forming a neat line, like the girls in Madeline. I wonder if Nellie would have read Ludwig Bemelman's book, which was published in 1939. I also wonder if the faces of these schoolgirls, one with pigtails, one with strawberry blonde hair, are the faces of children Nellie knew in real life. Are they Nellie's Christian neighbors, who one day welcomed her with a barrage of stones and hateful language instead of their usual smiles? Are they her friends from the Jewish ghetto where Nellie's family was forced to move? Is one her cousin, Ninka, who didn't make it through the war? Nellie writes, In my pictures, there was no war, no danger, no police, and no tears. Everyone liked each other in my make-believe land, and all the people were free as kites in the sky or butterflies in the field. They were like newfound companions to me in my loneliness And I couldn't wait to take my next walk on paper with my watercolor friends. Were you very methodical then about how you went about creating your pictures? Like, did you think about what you wanted to draw ahead of time and sort of plan it out so that you wouldn't waste paper?
1: I did have mind making up little stories. And these stories are reflected in the drawing and watercolor pictures, which were sewn together into booklets. One of the stories that I became very involved with was a story that my mother read to me, which that lady brought from the library, which was, believe it or not, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And you know, I never saw a black person in my life. I decided to make up a story of this uh, little girl and the mother trying to escape from the bedmaster. And after my mother read me the story of Uncle Tom's cabin, I completely forgot our circumstances, but I felt bad about the girl that was being whipped by a bedmaster. So I did have a concept in my mind.
0: Another thing that really struck me about Your watercolors in every single painting where there are people, it seems like you pay real attention to what they're wearing, that they're put together, that there are patterns on their clothing. You arrived at the Wojtek's house with what you had on your back, that there was, of course, no bringing a suitcase or a change of clothes.
1: That's right. And then my mother was knitting something because there was no way to buy it or a suspicion was aroused. How come this lady who has no children, why would she buy a teenage sweater, for an example?
0: Over the course of the next couple of years, Nellie's family made multiple attempts to find safety. First, they placed her with a Catholic husband and wife, where she was told to pose as a long-lost niece from the countryside. But when the couple took in a border, an icy blonde named Wanda, with perpetually pursed lips, Nellie's dark hair and city accent started arousing suspicion, and it became too dangerous for her to stay. She arrived back at the ghetto to find that her aunt, cousins, and little brother were gone. They had been taken away by the Nazis in a raid. Nellie and her mother then escaped the city with several other families by paying off a German officer, who promised them safe passage to Hungary. They found themselves stranded in a barn in the countryside, reliant on bartering with hostile townspeople for food. Over the course of four weeks, the group of Jews from Lvov were harassed, threatened with violence, split up, swindled by the German officer, and ultimately forced to hide in a swamp during a cleansing of local Jews. More than half of the group were either murdered or captured, and Nelly and her mother, among the lucky ones, returned to Lvov. Later, Nellie would use that time in the country as creative fodder for what might be the most extraordinary example of gilding the turd that I've ever seen. Nellie painted a series of seven watercolors accompanied by a charming story about rural life titled, A Week in the Country or The Very Pleasant Peasants. There's a barefoot woman with long blonde hair washing clothes in a duck-filled pond. Two children, also blonde and rosy-cheeked, are on their way to church dressed in their Sunday best. There's a painting called Sunflowers Growing in the Shadows featuring cheery yellow flowers and a contented duck in a sun-dappled wetland, a place very like the swamp where Nellie hid overnight, stifling her tears, listening to gunshots in the distance. It's like a beautiful brochure for a five-star resort that turns out to be a roach-infested dump, but in reverse. Eventually, in the spring of 1943, Nellie and her mother find their way to the apartment that they will not leave for the next year and a half. It's in a building that Nellie's family technically owns, or at least they did before the war. The Wojtek's were their tenants, and they agree to hide Nellie and her mother in their apartment.
1: Picture a 3 times size bathroom. That probably would be the size of the room. The mister, I would call a mister, he had a regular bed. Just as we could look at today in a single bed. His wife slept on a beat-up-looking sofa, and then there was another bed that my mother and I occupied. That room had also a little table, a little square table where we would eat our meals, which she cooked in the kitchen.
0: There is even a cleverly constructed hiding space, a boarded-up window that, from the outside, blends in with the facade of the building, and on the inside is covered with a trap door and a wall hanging. It's just big enough for Nellie and her mother to stand in sideways during raids.
1: Can you imagine that? The doors were locked, and it was not unusual because a lot of robberies took place during that time. So in that locked room, it was my mother and me, the table where I had the watercolors, and when the Germans wanted to see the apartments, which happened several times, it was incumbent upon us to make sure that there was no trace left.
0: You'd have to clean up the watercolors and go to your hiding space.
1: But you have to do it pretty quickly. The lady would look for the key to open the door. And she would try to postpone it as long as she could before she opened it. So
0: she would try to stall the visitor for as long as possible to give you and your mother time to clean everything up and go to your hiding place.
1: Yes, exactly. And as I am telling it to you, I can't even imagine that it really happened to me. It seems like I'm telling you a fairy tale. It's so far away. It's so unreal. But that's what took place.
0: There's a real wild card, though. Mr. Wojtek is not well. He suffers from mental illness, and he takes a fancy to Nellie's mother, who has to put up with a tremendous amount of bullshit from a man who holds her fate in his hands. And worse still, he frequently flies into violent rages, beating his wife and threatening to kill her. Nellie's mother tries to help her, but what can she do? She can't call the police.
2: My name is Wei Hua Li. I am um, a data reporter at the Marshall Project, which means I try to use data to find um, insight uh, to what's happening in the criminal justice world and tell our readers about it.
0: Wei Hua and her colleagues at the Marshall Project recently looked at data from three cities in the United States Chicago, Austin, and Chandler, which is right outside Phoenix. And what they found unsurprisingly was that crime rates have fallen significantly since shelter in place orders began.
1: But when we
2: look at domestic violence, we see also a decrease, though not near nearly as fast we we were we were sort of excited to see the decrease because since the um, beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people who work with domestic violence um, survivors have been warning us about. We're going to be seeing a spike just because the anxiety is so much higher and victims are trapped, stuck in the same place with their abuser.
0: So this seems like great news. There's been a decrease in domestic violence complaints. That means that less domestic violence is occurring, right?
2: So we we think not necessarily in these exact cities in this in the same exact time period the domestic violence shelters for example um, are actually seeing an increase in calls so when we talked to chicago pd they told us they're seeing an increased call of 911 calls uh, regarding domestic violence but when the police officer actually responded to the scene um, they didn't file an incident
0: Why do you think that might be that people are less willing to file a police report during this time of coronavirus?
2: One thing we hear about constantly is um, this cost-benefit analysis that every single domestic violence survivor has to do in their mind um, when they decide to seek help. Right. Where am I going to be staying? How about my children? You know, if I lost my job because COVID-19 and my you know partner, my abusive partner is the breadwinner, if, if I cut loose of him, who's going to be paying the bills? Especially with COVID-19, a lot of uh, shelters that typically would have taken in survivors, a lot of them are not accepting new victims. Um, especially those, those who have children. And something else that um, survivors think about is in, in normal times, you know, if, if they were ser- severely hurt by their partner and call 911, um, their partner might spend, you know, a day or two in jail before they're able to pay bail. Um, but because of COVID-19, most cities are don't want to um, raise the jail population because as we're seeing, you know, Jails and prisons really are becoming a hotspot. So they're thinking, even if I call the police, it's likely that my partner is going to be, you know, arrested today and then be re- released by the end of the day because the jails don't want them to stay in there. And another way to think about the same um, problem is, you know, if I do call the police and my partner is arrested afterwards, what if they're contracted with COVID-19? And we do hear from service providers and um, police officers saying that all these concerns have actually been used by um, abusers as an excuse. You know, why would you call the police? Do you want me to die in prison? And something else you have to think about is in a typical, in a normal times, you know typically a survivor would have you know to wait outside or they they might stay with a
0: neighbor, for example.
2: Um, just wait for an authority to arrive. And all those are just not possible during this difficult time.
0: If somebody is experiencing domestic violence during this time, what should they do and where can they go?
2: That's a good question. What's the solution here? Um, You know, most survivors, when they seek help, they don't just call 911 on the first try. A lot of them would, after reach out to domestic violence hotlines, and you know, a lot of these hotlines are developing platforms that allow someone to uh, chat online as opposed to having to call in. And um, there, there are also police departments and um, domestic violence hotlines that, that have tax services. And also something else that we have to keep in mind is even though COVID-19 made it extremely difficult to, to go, out, go outside and live their lives, Um, as they normally would do it, Um, there's still things that people have to do every day, right? Like getting groceries, going to the pharmacy, for example. And those could be an opportunity to seek help as well.
0: It's while in hiding with the Wojtek's that Nellie begins painting. Mrs. Wojtek lets a sympathetic neighbor in on the secret, and this neighbor starts procuring library books for Nellie. And also a watercolor set.
1: You know those little watercolor boxes that we can buy today, like 12 colors? That's the kind of a box it was.
0: Do you think if you could paint right now, what do you think you would paint?
1: So I paint right now very, very abstract and very large. Very different than what you see from my book. You know how Jackson Pollock would go over the canvas, and so do I. I do all kinds of very colorful uh, cubism abstract uh, large pieces. They're very colorful. Uh, They're quite good. And uh, I think it's like today. You know what I mean? It's not a yesterday art. It's today."
0: Nellie writes, Once I started to paint, a new world opened up for me. It was as if this little box of watercolors made a bright path straight through the apartment walls to the outdoors. Sometimes after I finished my pictures, I would write little stories about the grown-ups and children who I had painted so carefully. Occasionally, I made up stories as I went along, but more often they were in my head even before I began to draw. Tales of birthdays, school, dogs, visits with father or just walks with friends. Playing with friends, visits to the doctor, bath time. Nellie's watercolors, for the most part, depict exceedingly normal, even mundane activities. She's not painting witches and dragons, princesses and magic carpets, whatever the 1940s version of Elsa from Frozen is. For Nellie, the normal life of a child was fairy tale enough. doom is hosted and produced by me mackenzie bagan it's produced and edited by isabel alcantara and our executive producers are jonathan leaf sasha mathias and aziz isham